let's not forget science is super fun it's exciting it's a luxury that we can you know we walk on the problems on the verge of the human knowledge just think about how people pay us to actually go and walk on things that nobody knows nobody has a clue what going to be like the next thing there are no like even no experts for that because experts are only for things that has been done before we are doing something new someone is paying us to work on that to communicate this research to, to, to be part of this magnificent endeavor called human science everyone. We are very, very excited for today's episode. Uh, we have here Yeni Verlich, Professor Yeni Verlich. Um, we've tried to organize this uh, conversation for a really long time, but COVID happened and all kinds of things in between. So we are very excited to have you here. Hi, Yeni. Hello. Really, really excited to be here. Thank you very much. And hi, Offer. Hi. Very excited about this conversation. Yaniv uh, did a PhD in computer science uh with a professor for a while both in Columbia University and in Israel um has been leading uh the has been the chief, chief scientific officer in my heritage a very interesting uh genomics uh company and now is the co-founder and the chief executive officer at 11 therapeutics an exciting RNAi uh, treatment uh companies and we're gonna delve into it and hear more about the technology and how that relates uh you know, Small correction, I didn't do yes. my PhD in computer science, it was in biology and bioinformatics, and uh, I, I never, like, I, I was a professor of computer science, but I don't have any degree in computer science. Oh, wow, interesting. Okay, great. Thank you for that. He's very outspoken about academia and industry and how that works and how he thinks uh, it should work for postdocs. Um, we had a few opportunities to, to chat over that as well, um, and we we're very excited to bring his point of view here as well. How about you do it a bit better than me and, and walk us a little bit through uh, how, how this looks for you, your career? Yeah, so I, I was quite fortunate after my PhD, immediately after my PhD, I got a lab at MIT. And uh, so I became a PI. So I didn't do a postdoc myself. And I also was quite fortunate. So I started my academic journey a bit later than other people because I spent nine years uh, at the army. And uh, I was in a... Um, a200 uh, the intelligence and during that time I did my undergraduate studies but it took a long time to complete the studies just because I, I took like classes here and there until I completed my undergraduate degree and then at the age of 27 which is very typical US uh, PhD student I started my PhD at Coltsman Harbor and I was also fortunate because I had a very short PhD Coltsman Harbor the program I selected this program because it is known for the short length of the program, three and a half years. And immediately after that, I got my lab at MIT. So I quite quickly became from like an undergraduate to, to a PI and leading my own research program. And I, I'll just stop you that. Do, do you think that's because it was sort of mainly bioinformatics or I don't know, for, for biology, you know, it's a very outstanding um so Coltsman Harbor actually, like first, I did my PhD in in a molecular lab. I I, I decided to do more bioinformatics things, but I also had some experiments mm -hmm. in my, my PhD that I executed. Um, 
And I know, I know how to run a gel. I did tail injection, PCR, PCR, exome sequencing. Sick, I, I do all of that. Yeah, I'm not, not, not great in like, like benchmark, but I'm not bad. You know, every time that even the company that I, I know like how to debug experiments because you, you did enough in order to understand that this, uh, you need something more robust. <laughs> It's 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 a different, you know. I tried in my PhD. My vision was actually to do like to spend half a day on the bench, half a day on the computer. It didn't work because yeah. it's a different mindsetting. Like you do an experiment, the experiment is kind of like you you have this kind of like punctuated bursts of activity that you do. And I thought in between I can just go in the computer to to program. But once you kind of like try to debug something, you're consumed by the by the problem, and then you figure out, oh, my gel is running now for four hours. Well, it's like it fell off, right? So it doesn't work this way. It's it was just an idea. at some point decided, okay, I will, I will, I did some experiments, like you know, not very complicated ones, um, and then I I most spend most of my time on the bioinformatic and the computational biology aspects of these experiments, mm -hmm. rather than kind of like trying to to do both, um, but I I. The, the program in Cold Spring Harbor, to, to your question, uh, Elena, the, the, the program in Cold Spring Harbor is known, also for people who do 100% molecular biology, known to be short. Uh, it was part of the vision of Jim Watson when he constructed this program. He was based on his experience in the UK that PhDs are three and a half years here in the yeah. UK. Yeah. And I think there is something into it because the philosophy of Cold Spring Harbor is that you can gain quite like first if if you know that it's four and four four and a half years everyone knows that you will not waste your time on on bullshit experiments and just be like your like the the slave of your pi in a way mm -hmm. which could be and, and in a way the program is geared that once you become kind of like the most efficient mm -hmm. here's think about like the tragedy of a pi right you get students they are not very competent at the beginning right and then you kind of like build them. And then once they become like, you know, the most competent, the most productive, they leave. <laughs> you need to let them go. So it's, it's a natural tendency of many programs actually to keep the students a bit longer than what you need, another one, two years, and then let them go because that's the the, the, the peak of their productivity. And in Cotswing Harbor, they actually, like, the program is structured in a way that the PI starts to actually get fined by the institute of if the, the, the student is not uh, graduating on time. So it's it's a very kind of like the program is geared to get you out quickly, which is very, very good. I, I really like this idea as a student, maybe as a PI is less nice for the <laughs> PI. Um, and uh, that's, I think, the reason why I was able to finish quickly. I also think some of the maturity level that I got to be able to run my own group was because I spent nine years at A200. It's mm -hmm. one of the best schools. There are things that you cannot do in academia that you can do in the army in terms of like research training and maybe one example it's actually i just talked about it with one of my uh one of my friends today like i remember like clearly right in the there is imposter syndrome everywhere in any stage of your career right so think about they come to like my first few months at a200 and and you you feel kind of like stupid because like in high school you used to be like you know one of the smartest kids us <laughs> yeah. right you knew math you knew like stuff and you were like you was a geek and now you become and everyone is a geek you're not special everyone is smart you're not special so it's quite quickly this like imposter syndrome creeps in and i clearly remember you know one of my superiors in the in the in the team that i was looked me in the eyes and told me, Yaniv, I never seen a failure like you in my life. A total lapse of recruitment 
There was a bug in the recruitment. And people in the scene, you know, few people told me that, people that are friend, my friends today, right? And it was a very good way. Like either you make it, right? You go through this imposter syndrome, you understand, okay, like I, I just cut through it or you, or you don't, and then you leave, right? Or you just yeah. underperform. You cannot do that in academia. You cannot do it in any normal setting outside of the army. But in a way, this was, you know, I, I actually think about a very good training for me to go through like, you know, to overcome failures, to overcome like, just to, okay, like, be, like develop this confidence that you can achieve things because like, you know, when people crush you at 18 years old and you can survive, it, it, it just, it's, it builds your character for the rest of your life. Yeah. I don't know if I can recommend that specific I, I don't recommend that. I just say that it was a good, ex- you know, it's like, I don't recommend it's experience for no one, but yeah. if you go through this experience, it's actually, it, it builds your character for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can resonate with that. I also spent like six years. I did uh, I did my bachelor's before army, sort of now OTC uh, to that, and then I spent six years in an R and D branch within the armed forces. So we are like quite. So we are not a technology. We, we are the only technology or like you know academics within a very traditional armed service uh, uh, branch. And we were also like being treated as an odd bird somewhere and nobody and everybody said you're not you're out of place because you're not you don't have armed uh, you don't have uh, uh, real army services real army training and stuff like that and then I had a lot of those experience and I think it really builds character and I think I see it now and and I completely resonate with the three and a half years you can see it now when I'm a postdoc and I see the undergrads I see them after three years, even with rotation first year and everything, which is, it's exciting and everything. Three years, they're burned out. You yep. see them You see them in this project, they're declining. So I can completely resonate this three and a half years, get them out there to lead in 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 their peak when they're, when they're hype, when they're still very, they, they want to do something new and they are not feeling this heavy burden. I haven't seen any, any PhD student really finishing with a smile like <laughs> b- because not because he's finishing because he is excited about the next step in academia it's because it's the most of them are, are smiling because that's that's it i can't take it and, and it shouldn't be this way i it shouldn't know, i i did like, i actually you know think about my phd and i remember it clearly i really enjoyed my phd studies i was able to just like have time to think and, and to open like this like connect between ideas meet interesting people and and i i think that should be the common experience of a phd student the whole point of this position is like you know take three four five years whatever time it takes you go you learn a new skill set that can be applied that this skill set is not just how to run a jail is how to think how to def- how to design an experiment how to communicate your science how many people know i like i saw people brilliant people they just don't know how to communicate their science and this is a tragedy right yeah. you're not yeah. your phd is not to be like running jail slave right it should not be like that so that's i think part of the of the reason why we need to reform academia right to make it really about the student they come they come in their peak time in their life right all the energy like you know now i'm i'm 43 years old in two weeks like it's not the same energy level I had when I was like 27 years old. They're excited. They, they, they don't have also familial commitments that usually we have like when we are older. So we kind of like, they've come with all this energy. We need to channel this energy and to give them the best training that we can, we can give them. 
but, then but you I, say but you say that this this program exists and and not in an obscure think, university no, right it's Small programs in the UK also have those but they're not very big so why it's not propagating if you can see the benefits why it's not it, propagating? It, because it, it doesn't it doesn't help the PIs right mm -hmm. I, I remember in Columbia University when I was a PI they they had the students come for the first two years they come and then they come with their thesis proposal and I was shocked like being like you know the professor of one of the students like why it takes two years to come with a thesis proposal I was expected to come after like you know like one year already to know what kind of like what I'm about to work on and just like, like start to like you know produce things if you are on the clock you will be much more effective if you tell people oh just one not I, here is the thing I think like time in academia that's another thing that we need to change in a way I have a friend he finished his postdoc came to interview in Israel for faculty positions and he was they told him you know what you you did some you know it's good but we want to see that this manuscript this big manuscript that you're talking about is going to be accepted and then we'll give you the position which is a bit like why do you need like three re anonymous reviewers to to vet that which is a bit weird and then he said it will take a year and I'm like, okay so come back next year now think about it you take some person in the how many decades of productivity you really have in your life right not so many right like high productivity like the peak of your career 15 years maybe it's like your best productivity not talking about the training position as a phd but just like after that and then you take like one year and just throw it to the garbage in a way yeah yeah this is like it's and and that's part of the things you know that i think we should like rethink about when we talk about academia and about the training we give to people the opportunities we give to people um that just needs better discussion yeah and i think uh when you moved on to whitehead that's also a program they they also understand that you know you can't skip that postdoc position right they have this whitehead fellows that, that's what yeah, you joined yeah i joined as a whitehead fellow it's a position you get it's you get a pi position you're not a, like you're not faculty at, at Whitehead. There's certain like you know you cannot. They say in the rules that you cannot uh, be the advisor of students, but like any Israeli, I was able to circumvent it all and to be an advisor. <laughs> not like not on paper. There was like huge like I have a few students that were in my lab, but someone else signed like the copy. <laughs> um, so that's a. a it, it's, it's also and also it's bounded by five years you cannot say longer than five years mm -hmm. and part of the thing is exactly like that they know you come early you're energetic you're fearless you're fearless because you never like experience enough failures in your life to to fear of the, so you, you take bigger bets and also it's easier to get to take bigger bets when you're younger because if like you crush and burn there is enough time in your career to to raise from the ashes right mm -hmm. and i took I see this opportunity. I took some bigger bets that maybe today I would not do that. I was mm -hmm. did some things that I would say on the verge of career suicide. People told me that's going to be career suicide. <laughs> right? People like you know, I had like like discussions with top people in genomics told me that uh, totally career suicide. But you can only do these things when you are just kind of like young and and stupid in a way. Mm -hmm. And and this is but this is the type of science that we need. This is the type of science that is getting like excited and not about like reviewer three right that's yeah 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 because okay. like let's not forget science is super fun it's exciting it's a luxury that we can you know we work on the problems on the verge of the human knowledge yeah just think about how 
people pay us to actually go and work on things that nobody knows. Nobody has a clue what's going to be like the next thing. There are no, like even no experts for that because experts are only for things that has been done before. We are doing something new. Someone is paying us to work on that, to communicate this research, to, to, to be part of this magnificent endeavor called human science that started, it's, it's a very recent institute. Only 300 years ago, it really started to become organized, right? And, and the thing that we think about science is controlled. It's, it's a very recent endeavor, but accomplished so much for humanity. Yeah. And we're part of it, which is amazing. And we need to cover, keep remembering that's like, no, that's that's the thing. Yeah. That's what's so cool about it. I completely agree. So you were set on a very successful academic path, it sounds like. How did you end up in, in industry? Yeah. So I think it was a combination of a few things, right? First, I, I was, again, lucky enough. I, I was I, I came to Whitehead Institute, came to Boston. And then I think after like a month in Boston, I already received my first consulting uh, request. Mm. Uh, this was also the early days of genomics. And there was... I did some stuff in genomics that was quite interesting, I think, for some people. So I was I started to be involved in, in several companies to consult, to advise, to see how, how it goes. And you always wonder about, you know, whether the grass is like the grass looks greener, right? On the other side. <laughs> you keep wondering. And um, and after like a few years, also, you know, I moved to Columbia University. And it was a combination of first, on the personal familiar level, we didn't enjoy New York. It was not mm. good for us. Like Boston was treated as much, much better than New York. Um, and we felt that this is not the right place for us. We tried to try to switch from living in Manhattan, to living in New, New Rochelle, which is the suburbs, see whether we like it more. So that was one thing, right? I was like, we were unhappy on, on mm -hmm. the personal level. The, the setting was like academic, like the lab was funded, you know, like I, I, when I left millions of dollars, I left in my... <laughs> Oh bank account, right? <laughs> and and the facility was amazing, in Soho, amazing. It is like really fantastic view to to Tribeca. Um, but on kind of like you know, like if like my wife was not super happy about like living in New York and just another bad winter after another bad winter, another bad winter. So that was one thing. The second thing that I started to consult to my heritage in 2016, they asked me to consult to them. Mm. Um. It, it's actually a funny story. In 2000, when I started my group at Whitehead, one of the first thing I did was I, I watched the social media by, uh, you know, the, the movie about Facebook. This was yeah. like 2010. Mm -hmm. And Facebook started in Harvard, right? So you kind of like go to this place and say like, wow, like I'm in the place where things happen. Everything can, can <laughs> invent anything. And then I said, okay, I want to do something with social media, something I didn't know at that time it's called big data, but I wanted to do something. So the first thing I did was I, I, went to a website called genie.com, which is a website for genealogists that they document mm -hmm. the family trees. And I requested from the city or send a call to them and said, hey, I'm Yanni from MIT. I want to download all the data. This was before Snowden, before big data is scary. They allowed me to say, okay, download all the data. And, wow. with it. and I said, like, I'm human geneticist. As human geneticist, we're interested in families. And here is the biggest family tree that I can get. So let's see what mm -hmm. I can do. So I embarked upon this project, which eventually is published in Science in 2018. It was eight year, eight year journey, this project. But in the middle, my heritage acquired Genie.com, and kind of like this, like an Israeli, like this formed a connection with my heritage. Mm. And after that, basically, I consulted to my heritage in 2016 because of this connection about their DNA product, and 
I also felt from a kind of like professional level that I accomplished kind of like the full cycle of, of being a PI. My first student became a PI herself, mm. also without a postdoc, by the way. And <laughs> um, yeah, she, you she's- You can see it, you can be it. <laughs> yeah, she, she was super smart. There was no reason to do a postdoc. And, and she, you know, she's highly successful right now. She's like, she's really good. And I also published, you know, like a few many, like high profile manuscripts and also got like, you know, like all the check boxes for the major grants that I could get. So kind of like felt that, you know, kind of like I checked all the boxes at least once. Mm. So now the question, am I going to keep doing that until I, I will die here on the bench at the age of 70? And I remember like vivid, like think, like thinking about it. This is what life is going to be. You're now that... in Cambridge, Gordon, uh, Sir Jordan, John Gordon is still yeah, on the so... bench at 96 or something. I, I, I don't care about the bench, just like the setting, right? At least <laughs> it's going to be like that. I'm going to submit grants, public manuscripts, you know, go to con. It's it's fun. It's it's great. But is this like, that's it? So yeah. that's it. Like figure it out. Like, And and then this, this offer for my heritage came and this was in the right moment, right? We thought like maybe New York is not the place for us. Like industry, I always like curious, you know, what's going like, you know, how is it in industry? And then also that just like feeling that, okay, in academia, I kind of like, I go to this point that, yeah, it's it's solid. And also it's not that I jumped and said, okay, bye-bye academia. I was able to take two years to kind of like take two years off while retaining my position at Columbia University. So I could mm. come at any point in the first two years. That's great. And you already sort of knew what you're going through, sort of towards, because you already consulted with them, so you knew. Yeah, so I knew the company. Works. I got the vibe of the people. I saw that I like the, the the people. You know, it was the also meant meant to went back to Israel, and um, on a personal level, that was important for me. That you know, my kids like you know will spend sometimes with their uh, my grandparents and their, their grandparents, yeah. um, and um, so it was the right moment at the right time. Um, yeah was an interesting uh, transition. So how, how was it like? So how is it different doing research in, in my heritage and research in, in university? So I, I would actually com- contrast the research at 11 to the research university because my heritage, the, it's less of a research-oriented company, right? It's more about like you develop these more clinically-grade tests, which is different. I've never done it before. But it's less of this open exploration that that we do now at eleven, and and so I can I can at least talk about eleven, and I think mm-hmm. at eleven we are developing uh, um, nucleic acid therapeutics, and uh, we have this platform that to keep for chemical modifications. And we're not going to the technical details, but we are, we are doing some really interesting research here. And the thing that I really like about eleven is that first. It's super multidisciplinary research. I need to understand organic chemistry. I need to understand bioinformatics and cell biology, and also how to translate everything into then to human, right? Into clinical trials. So that's like one interesting thing about the research. And I think in academia, although I did some quite interdisciplinary research, I think it's harder to get the license to do this type of research. Because at the end, you need like to get from funders. Someone needs to fund the research, so you need to convince something someone to fund it you need to convince reviewers to that that's you know this manuscript is worth like publishing and to do all of that when you enter into a new field when you kind of like you are the an outsider there is some natural resistance in academia even in your department sometimes department will say wait are you really i don't know x or y 
or this or that. And if you don't really fit into like you are, you are the, the peg in this, the, the round holes, then you, you will not, they, if, if it's hard for them to define you, they will not like it. There are some antibodies in academia against that. <laughs> now, if you're a professor, maybe it's, 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 it's not so bad, but yeah. that's one thing. Yeah, an academia immune system I, I for risk. Basically, <laughs> what I found is that academia is risk averting. This is the, the, the amount of... But less, less than, you know, in the industry is more risk averting. That's for sure. Like an industry need to be, I need to have a very compelling story why I do that. And I think I was able to convince my current fund, like my investors to do that, right? Yeah, but... Yeah. but you but always have stage, someone to convince, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but at the stage, you're trying to get the fund. So when you, when you submit a grant, okay, when you submit an R01, Okay, that's I found that that's you need to de-risk in a level that is incomprehensible for founders for the science founders. So when and when you go with a with a basic idea and some initial data to fund to seed fund raising, it it it, it it's it's more it, also there is a larger market right like just think yeah. there are more dollars floating in the VC market that you can you can capture but you need to show that there is a path for success in terms of like um, that it can be commercially viable idea right it's different now what do I miss in academia I know academia by the way I had a lot of fun doing research in academia so I don't want that the listeners will just like think okay academia is bad. For instance, in academia, I worked on this for some time. I haven't published this manuscript, but it's like at some point I will, I will like, just as an example, right? I was interested in the mathematics of DNA synthesis. If you kind of like can go to like mathematical level and you think about like different equations and how to like the kinetics and the number of symbols that you can use to determine the kinetics, beautiful problem. I worked for it for like two years and in my spare time, kind of like, and, and trying to get the proofs and the theorems right. And, and the, the, I have the main results. The manuscript is not finished just because I didn't prove the, the final thing that I needed with these like theorems, right? To make it complete. But the ability just to kind of like go and just for the beauty of the intellectual challenge to go and work on the problem, that's something that you don't have. I don't have this luxury in industry, right? Just to think about sometimes just you have this like, okay, I need to solve this thing. Why do I need to solve it? Just because it's beautiful and it makes sense from aesthetic perspective, intellectual aesthetic perspective, it might be you know the the the, the concrete result is actually quite interesting. It is applicative, but I want to have this story that is like so complete that it just makes sense from the scientific perspective. I, we don't have that in industry, and uh, that's one thing that is lacking. Another thing I think in industry you don't get as good training as in academia. Here, when people come here, I want them to produce results. In academia, you should not just like focusing on, you should focus on your own career. It's about you, not about the team, right? You come here to do research, you fit in the team, you kind of like, you know, it's like a soccer team, right? Yeah. You have your you stuff. Come with a skill set. Yeah, like you're not here to like, you, you, I want to build your career, I want you to be successful, but that's not, that's like the periphery of it. That's the long term. In academia, when you do a PhD or do a training, you should be able to go and take some time off and read a book if you need to read this book for your research, for your long-term growth, to attend some lectures, to open your, like, expand your brain. That That's the time for that. And people pay you money to do it. So go and do it, right? So I, I think that's the difference between research in academia versus research in industry. But I would like to add another point. And it's like the entrepreneurship in academia versus entrepreneurship in industry. Because also being a professor, being a PI is a sort of entrepreneurship. You come to a place 
it's empty, you need to build something out of nothing, right? And the same thing in the company, you build something out of nothing, that's the point of entrepreneurship. In academia, the entrepreneurship is a bit different because you have 100% intellectual freedom, but you have nearly 0% freedom outside of your intellectual freedom. The HR, uh, um, HR uh, policies are set by the university. The salaries are typically set by the university. But even intellectual the, freedom, you're not, you know, you need to get grants. You like, you know, maybe yes. in mathematics, you can sort of think of whatever you yeah. want to think. But in, in biology, biology, if you don't have funding to do that specific experiment, but you're but stuck. you you go after your heart at, at the end, yeah. right? You do That's have this, and I I I was, you know, maybe I was just more luck, like, had this better luck. I was able to secure a lot of funding to just. Well, wake up in the morning with a crazy idea and just go with this crazy yeah. idea, which is great. That's what academia meant to be, right? It's great. It's fun. Well, but be that. Yeah. then they take a lot, universities, they unload a lot of the burden of managing like, you know, the structure of your group. And then from kind of like management perspective, you most groups become very dull in terms of how they look like. It's a start topology. You have students and postdocs, you have the PI in the center, and maybe you have some technicians that report to the post, but but that's it. It's not becomes it's not very interesting uh, from how you build a team together because these are all individuals working on their own career, which is how it should be. In the industry, on the other hand, a lot of the my energy and my thinking is like how we build it as a team. What functions do we need? How to connect to people together? How to be like what for our finance department? What do I want from our finance department to do? What policies do we need to have? What processes do we need to have? What type of people do we need to have? What's the interface between the finance department and between other departments? And it goes on and on with other things. What are the HR? How do we recruit people? So these are the type of things that you can do in industry. And if you like it, some people just don't like it. It's fine, right? Mm -hmm. That you have more freedom and you have more of your own input. So can you talk a little bit about how how is sort of science sort of sort of designed and done in it eleven sort of because obviously you definitely have people that are working towards a specific product, right? Yeah. When do they have time to sort of explore sort of less explored areas? So that's something that you know it's an active active discussion. Um and I I'm not sure that I have the full answer. Sometimes I, mm -hmm. I feel you know, figure it out, sometimes I feel that you know we, we did it. Um <laughs> Part of, so, so first, one thing that we have is that every quarter we meet the entire company and we set, each team sets their own quarterly goals, what they want to accomplish. Three months, where should we be three months from now? And I really put pressure on the on the teams to, to give it in, in a, <clears throat> sorry, in a very quantitative manner. So like I want to have, I don't know, whatever reaction and I want to have this reaction to be 90% efficient or something like like so we can we can measure it at the end. We know mm -hmm. whether we accomplish it or not. And not mm -hmm. be precise. And then they walk towards these like milestones. We have this every two weeks we meet the team managers to talk about like what let's break it into sprints. What do we want to accomplish in the next two weeks? And this is kind of like how how we move forward. And of course, it's a startup. Milestones can change. Sometimes we hit a wall and realize it's like it's unattainable. We should take a different approach. So there is active tuning all the time. 
I like there is an Eisenhower quote saying, plans are worthless, planning is everything, yes. which I think it's it's quite important, especially the company, when you try to synchronize like a few functions together, it's important. Not sure, by the way, in academia, we need that. It's like not maybe the right tool, right? To, to just have, because people work on, on, on the wrong project. It, they can set up themselves goals, but but they will just we don't need to sync keep in the synchronization, which takes a lot of time. I think it works but, nicely when yeah. it works in academia as well. Yeah. It, I think it's good to put some goals to break your your research into attainable goals, but we spend a lot of time to synchronize the goals, right? And that's take a lot of like dialogue and and constant discussion, which if it was not a company, better just go just to the experiments, yeah. right? We don't need that. I think at the PhD level, that's, that's right. But when you're a postdoc, I think that should be part of your training. So part of the curve needs to be how you how you design, like not macro design, like you see a company uh, growth and get all the, you know, the, the all, see all the forces on the company, market, founders, uh, uh, investors, and the science. But the postdoc has to run a small project. It has to be, uh, to operate as a small project manager. So really have his, uh, uh, relay his goals like in the next quarter, what is the, this experiment's contribute, where we are on this aim, on that aim, and that thing. And, and, and we can talk about the, the, you know, the challenges of a postdoc in, in a moment, but I think one of the challenges is that the postdoc doesn't have anyone to reflect. It's like the PI usually doesn't support this type of like no. reflection, but just the ability, like, you know, when I go and meet with the board or the line managers meet with me or, or people meet with their line managers, there's always a constant dialogue. Like, okay, where do, like, you need to report, like, you, you get, like, a feedback, is this good or am I on track or not? And sometimes with postdocs, you you kind of, like, lose the thread because you keep, like, very incremental. You don't see, like, you know, like, in the, the, the big uh, uh, prize. But that we can talk about postdocs in a moment. I just want to complete this, like, how we, we manage, like, research. So now we realize that we have, about half of the company are individual contributors, meaning people that do not manage other people. They're just, they're the most important people in the company because they do the experiments, right? They actually yeah. do the stuff. Um, and we realized that we need to kind of like give them better career perspective. So one thing that we started about six months ago, and I wrote, I wrote this, it's called the, the IC Manifesto. I wrote it internally in our company website. Uh, like what we we need from like what we want from these people. What's the vision mm -hmm. for for this uh, position? So one thing that we we try to put like a very defined career ladder for them, mm -hmm. and what we're going to how they're going to be measured, and that this career ladder doesn't lead you to like if you are being promoted, you don't bring promoted to manage people. You can be promoted, you can be an IC, but an IC with just like a higher ladder. In, in this like uh, uh, to progress on the same ladder without because not everyone needs to to manage people to say like okay I, I reached the peak of my career it's not like that you can be an expert in your field not interested in managing people not maybe good in managing people but just like really good at what you're doing right now uh professional in, in, your, in your profession and also another thing that we are doing we, we allocated a budget uh, that each individual contributor can go to a conference uh, every year, and that's based on a discussion between them and the uh, line manager, and $100 to buy books on Amazon because I really want them to buy, to read books and just, you know, I want to reduce the friction of like, if they have an interesting book, they will not think, oh, it's like $16, I'm not going to purchase it. They just purchase it because it's on their account. Yeah, <laughs> nice. 
so do you hire people straight out of PhD or how does it work? Yeah, we do. We hire people straight off their PhD. We hire postdocs. We hire people that spend some time in the industry. There is a transition, and I don't think we master this transition yet, coming from academia to industry. It's not there yet. And and I think it's a bit, when you're in Israel, I think it's less of, of an issue to do this transition because you saw another system. When you're 18 years old, nearly all of the listeners, if they're Israelis, went to the army, right? Mm -hmm. So you saw a different system. Maybe it was like awful, maybe it was great, <laughs> maybe it was something a bit, maybe you went, you know, you'd be like in the, like in the troops uh, somewhere, you'd be... But you saw a different system. People that come from non-Israelis, they go straight, you know, to academia. They go undergraduate. Then some do master's degree, some go to PhD, postdoc. They come after 15 years that the only system that they saw in their adult lives is academia. They don't have the mental image of how companies or how other systems operate. And the problem is, as we know from machine learning, when you put the wrong model, no matter what data you get, if you don't have the right model, you'll get, you know, you will get not good results in terms of your ability to process the data. Part of the thing that we're trying to do now is help them to better kind of like, that's why I want them to read books. I want to go read books about like how startups work. Read about bad startups. Read about like, read bad blood, right? About Theranos. <laughs> don't read about Uber. I don't care. I didn't do it. Yeah, no, don't, don't do it. Yeah, don't do also, it. Yeah. Bad, examples are also, bad examples are also good examples the way that they're examples, yes. right? Yeah. But at least you have a mental model that you can project and, and then contextualize your own experience. You understand, you read about like, you know, what, like let's say in Theranos, right? How people, the how she behaved, you know, with investors, how she behaved with patients. It's totally wrong. Mm -hmm. But you could go through this journey that she had and kind of like see, okay, here are the folks in the road. I should have taken this. But at least you experience these folks in the road. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, actually, we talk a lot about how during your PhD, during your postdoc, you have these opportunities to collaborate, to to advise, to to really be in touch with, um, you know, with companies outside of academia so that both when you sort of finish your PhD and your postdoc, you're sort of more aware of what's out there. But also you have, you ha as you say, you have this mental image of sort of how company works and I don't think I ever sort of considered that the second part of it, but I think you're right that it's very important to at least have seen it sort of how others do it. Um, and when you join, it's it's easier for you to to adapt. Um, a lot of uh, questions uh, come up of sort of is postdoc is sort of a, you know, a waste. You said you hire both after a PhD or after a postdoc. Do you see differences? Do they get different type of positions? So I don't think, you know, like uh, on Twitter, you have to be like short and to like, you know, very... No, no, not just on Twitter, but, but in, in, no, no, in but, a but lot I say, of... I say, like, I, usually on Twitter, I say like, postdoc is a waste. I say like, I, I will I will make a more nuanced point. Yeah. An unplanned postdoc is a waste. Okay. The I think the worst thing is that there is an expectation that after you finish your PhD, you just go to a postdoc because it's what every successful PhD student is doing, right? The one that actually maybe go to the industry are they, you know, all the slackers or all the, <laughs> the people that don't have a good plan of, of their life. So the idea I think is like first plan your postdoc. Think about like you want to do a postdoc, fine. First, be very honest about the success rate. Most postdocs belong will not land a PI position. The second thing is like, think about, do you really want to live abroad? And where do you want to live abroad? I cannot stress enough 
the amount of strain it's going to put on the families of the people that will come. And the thing is, like, when you are the postdoc and, you know, you are fulfilling your career goals or dreams, maybe your spouse is not fulfilling her or his career dreams at this point. And maybe they will say, I will figure it out. But most people will not figure it out because they will come and there is kind of like there is this assortment bias. It's very relatively easy to get a postdoc position in top places. If your spouse is a non-scientist, it will not be easy for them to find a position. They are immigrants. They start from the lowest of the lowest of of the ranking system. Think about immigrants that come to Israel, how hard it is for them. It's going to be the same thing for your spouse. So take that into consideration. Do you have a good plan? Maybe you have a good plan. It's fine. But but like, that's part of the planning process. Think about the financial aspects of your living abroad. People look at the dollar signs. And I, I remember that from you know, my own PhD. So my wife, um, she got accepted when I started my PhD. She got an actual... A position in Cold Spring Harbor and they gave her the dollar amount of like their position and we were like wow that's like insane that's <laughs> super rich <laughs> and right now that's really nothing and you find out it's like actually no that's like no you're barely on the on the minimum wage right of of like of being there so you're you know you're not super rich so find out it's and especially for Israeli postdocs most the, the postdoc position in academia is geared towards people that are non-Israelis, meaning they don't have families. We are in Israel, we have bigger families and we marry younger compared to the European and the US population. We're also a bit older just because of the army. So these positions were not designed, fully designed to support families with kids. Mm-hmm. You're going to bring your kids. Education in the US, in these ages, usually it's private talking about checks of thousands of dollars a month. And that's post-tax, not pre-tax checks. How are you going to do that? Do you have the financial resource to do that? And then what do you want to accomplish? When you take this position, what really you want to accomplish? If you already do all like all of that and, and understand all of these like things, I suggest to go to one of the big hubs. Don't do a postdoc, unless in there you have some really scientific field that you're interested in, but way give like higher score for the big hubs because there are better opportunities also let me tell a secret to the listeners i saw enough postdocs came to a postdoc and then the pair told them we ran out of money no postdoc for you i saw it at mit not in like bad places the grant expired they couldn't renew the grant and now what now if you're in some small town what are you going to do if you're in like if you're in the boston area you will probably find another postdoc right there will be another place for you and you don't want to, to uh, unroot your family and to put it in a different position. All these things require careful planning and understanding also when you do this planning, also did you check other alternatives? Have you tried working in the industry? Go for one year. You can always do your postdoc after that. Have you tried that? Have you interviewed even? Just go and test the water. It doesn't cost anything to do that. Yeah. And then you can hear better... the projects, right? They like can understand how, how big they can be. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And after you do all of that processing, you gather like like a good, like approach it as a scientist, gather the information, come without preconceived notions just because everyone else is doing it. Go and do your own research and do it in a personalized, talk about personalized medicine with a personalized postdoc. <laughs> Very careful, analyze it 
And it's okay to say, I'm not interested in a postdoc because many reasons, or it's okay to say, I actually want to go to industry or I want to do that or this. And take the, this decision after a lot of thinking without ex expectations of what other people would say about you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would add to that that it's always uh, important not just figuring out that you're within a hub of many universities, but also like Boston, San Francisco, Seattle, maybe that in New York, that there are biotech around it and it's very close and see the relation, see if the lab or institute you're going into is offering you all kind of like alternative programs. If they have programs to, to, you know, to help the, the, the professional transition for PhD, for postdoc, that will signal out that that might be a good place to do a postdoc. You can do great science, but you have the opportunity to raise your head above the water and just look around and browse and just, just to understand what's around there. And, and also, if you're in big hub, you know, Boston. Boston is a 24-7 biotech party. There is always a conference about something. It's industry <laughs> about this. Go to these conferences, go to these networking events, try to see what some of most of them will be bullshit. Most of them will go because as a scientist, we we like this more um, adversarial attitude, like someone present and we ask questions and we try to poke holes. This is not how industry conferences usually work. It's more about like, what do you do? What do I do? How we can connect? It's less adversarial. It, it's like yeah. also more superficial in a way. But go to this event talk with people, gather information. You already you already traveled half of like, you know, across the, the Atlantic, you are there. See this opportunity. It's not just about like racing and producing more and more data. Take some time to see other things. I, just, I, I want to go back to this though. Like, let's say you did all the considerations. You did you did go for a postdoc. You did a good, you had a good time. You were a good researcher during your postdoc. Now you're sort of reconsidering your path again. If you do end up in industry, has this time been wasted? Could have you just skipped on it and go to a industry directly? Have you benefited something from that experience from your point of view? It depends, right? It depends. It depends what type of like whether your training was enough to give you the, to lend you this industry position. And it depends what did you do in your postdoc. If you didn't know how to program and in your postdoc you became a really good programmer. Uh, and then you're going to go to some bioinformatic position or you go to some position that involves programming. No, this time was not wasted. But again, if we look at the research, right? And the research was published in Nature. There is a paper in Nature Biotech 2006, yeah. 17 about on average, people who do postdoc and switch to industry, which will happen to most postdocs, they lose about $200,000 in their career. And that's before the inflation, right? So probably today it's $150,000. <laughs> so they lose quite a lot of money in their career. Now you can say that, you know, money is, is like uh, uh, not that important and that's fine. Not every decision should be dictated by money, by the way, right? It's it's yeah. fine. I got an offer to join Renaissance Technologies, which is the world's most richest quantitative trading that with Jim Simons was a billionaire and other people, you know, everyone walked there, became quite wealthy. And I said, no, I actually want to do, to be a PI at MIT. Mm -hmm. So it's fine to kind of like, you know, it's not, don't go with your heart, right? But you asked me about the average and if we have, that's the only quantitative data that we have. Interesting. But for example, I know that in pharma, at least, I don't know, 10 years ago when I was sort of listening to those, to those panels, you couldn't have like a group, like a research group in pharma you would need that postdoc training 
big pharma, big pharma is quite different than than startups i don't mm-hmm. like like in, at 11 we do give postdocs we give them like a bit if they are individual contributors they have like they will become senior scientists versus a scientist but we have people you know that we have teams of senior scientists and scientists and it's not always clear that the senior scientists you know they they the scientists would have much different responsibilities than the senior scientists for certain type of the project. It really depends on the individuals themselves. But if they want to lead a group, then does it matter? Can they lead a group after a PhD? I don't think I will. If the person comes and, and you know, prove, first they need to prove themselves anyhow, right? They need to come here and, and to prove themselves. I, I'm not averse to that. I don't think there is anything that just because you were a postdoc or not, you can, or better or worse, of leading a group. Mm-hmm. So okay. when you so when you get when when a postdoc or a PhD okay uh, apply for a position, what what would you in eleven therapeutics will look for like what make them aside from the science pop out as 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 a possible individual contributor that will benefit the company? So I, I tell you about one person right that we hired, a fantastic guy. Um, one thing that I really like this person after his PhD decided to move to his like parents' house. And for six months, just to build things, just to be build, you know, be a maker, just to like uh, surfing boards, things like that. And I thought, you know, I that's, that. and also he was not sure exactly what he wants to do next. He also thought maybe he wants to go to France. So he, he studied French to be a profession in France. And I, I you know, and also he's a, you know, just great guy and, and, I thought, okay, that's no, that's an interesting path. Like, just it was not like on automate. Actually, said, okay, I finished my PhD. It was a very good PhD, but I don't know what I want to do. I want, I want to build things. I want to, and so okay, I, I need builders. That's like what this company is about. So, you know, one of our best hires, um, and it's sometimes it's individuals that we just like in in an area that is really applicable for us, um. And we need people that can execute, right? That's the main thing. We need people that they have the scientific knowledge, but can also just be executors. They can get things, they can get shit done. That's like the basic thing, right? And by the way, it's not abundant skill. <laughs> it's not that abundant. And uh, yeah. But we, we look for these people, yeah. How does it work timing-wise, right? Like... Can you contrast that between academia and industry? Is it more stressful? Is it more sort of goal oriented? It's more goal oriented. I, I don't, you know, I, I can only talk from the position of the CEO of a company. I think it's less stressful for me. I compare myself. Oh. It, it might be, you know, it's like we have the, again, as an experiment, I'm, I'm 10 years older when I started my, my lab, even 12 years older, right? <laughs> I was much more stressful when I started my group and I think it's a combination. First, I was younger, right? And everything looked like it's the end of the world or something like that. And the other things were much more exciting, right? Because they're like, you know, like, oh yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, and and that's that's part of the of the yin and yang of being like just younger, right? Um the other thing is that at least you know, being the CEO of the company, is that I have management team, you know, people that I selected. One of them, my co-founder, is not a scientist. He's an F-16 co-pilot, was in several biotech before. And we met once before the pandemic and it clicked. And when we started doing the pandemic, I didn't even see him face to face for like six months. We just walked through Zoom to build this company. So it's working for us really, really well. 
Mm. And we joined another person uh, who is our chief therapeutics officer. She's in Boston. And I'm just surrounded by really smart and capable people that although the ultimate decisions are my own as a CEO, I have people that I can consult with and I have this, they have some experience and skill set that is, I was selected because it's complementary to my skill set. Whereas when you're a PI, you're pretty much on your own. You cannot, you're surrounded by people who are trainees by definition. Maybe you have some, some confident that, you know, if you're like older PI, you find a few people that stay with the group for a very long time. And they kind of like serve as, as this uh, role. But from the get-go, you cannot, you, group start by one person and that's mm -hmm. it. Not that you hire like a team of people and that's okay, here's a lab. Think about if academic labs were built this way, right? If this was like a mini group that actually is a, it's not about the PI, it's about, okay, let's have this setting, right? This team is really good, so let's put them together to do something. Uncommon in academia, which is, you know, a bit, uh, I think here that's another lost opportunity of an academic setting. I'm going on a wild guess, okay? If like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk comes in and says, Yaniv, build me a new set of academia, like a, a new institute. Are you going for this? I'm not sure that I will do that, I have to say. Just because I'm not good at large organizations and the politics involved in our organizations. There are people much capable than me. They just know how to work a team together, know how to be like in a group and be able to manage kind of like the, the power structure of the group and steer the group towards the right direction. And I, I don't think it's my forte to do that. So you need other people. I can advise, but I don't think that's my forte. I, I'm really good at startups when there is like a clear structure, it's small, it's to the point that you don't need to kind of like, you know, like as a CEO, I, it's not that I need to like kiss a lot of S's to get stuff <laughs> up, right? It, it, I'm just not good at it. And uh, I realize that I'm not, I'm not good at it. So yeah. there, think... there are great sort of alternative, you know, not completely alternative academia, but there are uh, interesting institutes that sort of research institutes that came up. For example, WIS is an amazing yeah, mm -hmm. uh, example of sort of something that works. They have more group dynamics. They have much more awareness of industry and startups. And we need more of that in Israel. We just yeah. need more of that in Israel as research institutes that are not, Weizmann is much bigger than Whited Institute, right? Much, much bigger. And we, we need more of that. And you know, why, why not? Why not to have more of that as a country? And the reason why not, because universities, they don't want to let, you know, don't want to release any power. They want to keep the power with themselves. Maybe a loaded question. Why form a company in in the UK? Wouldn't it be easier to do uh, to do it in Israel? Specifically, you know, you, you have the or talent. US. Yeah. Or the US. It it's like as many decisions, it was not actually planned. This was we started this this company during the pandemic and with the rush of like, let's do something with the pandemic and you know, do it as quickly as we can. My co-founder in the company, scientific co-founder, is my PhD advisor. And you can see we actually maintain very good relationships. Oh, wow. For a while. And he moved <laughs> from the US to the UK. He's the director of the CRUK at Cambridge University. He's like the dean of this, the place that I'm here, I'm here right now. And he told us, okay, if you start, the, like I was asking when we start the company, do you, are you interested to be involved? It's like, I'm in. Like, you know, an email like after like five minutes, it was like, I'm in. And then we said, and then he said, like, but you can start, like, if you're looking for, like, a lab, you can start here. I can actually rent for you a space here. Yeah. And we are, are really working hard to, to make those opportunities available. 
my and, God. I hope you see a stuff as they are hearing this. <laughs> and the thing is that here's the thing, and, and that's another thing that is, I think, um, I will not go deeply into this direction, but the difference between a, like a UK, like you know, this place, US, and Israel University. The agreement I have here is that I rent a space. There is no equity outreach, no royalty outreach, no give me this and that. Just like I rent a space, it's part of the mission of the Institute to cultivate ideas and, and to transform it into companies. I have access, right, to every, like, lab equipment. You know, it's like, it's amazing. Like, top-notch facility. Flow cytometry, sequencing, the best ones, tissue culture, animal facility, everything here. I just pay for this access. <laughs> you guys don't so see offer, but he's crying. I tried to start a company in DNS storage in Israel three years ago. I went to one of the universities without naming names. And I went to the TTO office. And by the way, they were fantastic. They asked, like they were like super fast. At least, you know, it was not. And I they offered me this really crappy office like an lab space without even a wind it was like an old i think a cleaning room that they converted into a lab space <laughs> and they wanted equity and they wanted this and that and it, it just so embedded in the culture that if you start a company you should like you know get like so much out of Grab it Grab as much as you can as early as you can yeah. get them young <laughs> yeah and 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 that's also a complaint talk with vcs about israeli vcs about licensing stuff from, from academia Oh. They will tell you that the deals in like, like it's just insane. Okay. They they want forty percent equity. Oh, really? You want forty percent? You know, it's like <laughs> it's like Stanford didn't take forty percent in Google, right? Yeah. It's like Harvard didn't take forty percent in Facebook. Like, what are you talking about? It's only like and 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 then when the company fail, they actually say, "Oh, good that we took a lot of equity in the company that we can still salvage something." Sure, it failed because it was you know it didn't left anything for the founders. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it was like it failed zero, before it started. It's very sad. And so that's part of the reason why it's in the UK. And then there are a few perks in the UK that you realize that are actually quite important in life sciences. The first one, the UK, you know, people criticize Brexit and all of that, but actually to get a working permit here, the easiest place that I have experienced. Mm. I can I can fund like it's not it's even easier than the US, much easier than the US. It's not like H1B. US is not easy. <laughs> H1B is terrible to get, right? Terrible. Like you, all visas, all of, you know, green card, I don't even mention that, but to get a working permit here, super easy. If there is someone talented in the world that I need, and this person knows how to speak English, I would love <laughs> to get this 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 permit for this person, sponsored by by my company. I pay ten thousand pounds for the lawyers, and three months later the person shows up. Amazing, Imagine, really. Now, another so so here I have you know access to talent. I have a person from 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 Germany and from India, and from um, we have people from Italy and one from uh, Serbia. I have access to talent. You know, the, the war doesn't start in Metula and ends in a lot. It's like <laughs> there's some talent outside of Israel, although we yeah. think we are super smart. Okay. Just Came here specifically of... so amazing at it. It's a, it's a hub. And I, people, it's easy for them to come. I will not be able to convince people to come to Israel at the same ease as I can convince them to come to the UK, although the weather in Israel is much better. <laughs> And the food is much better. It depends. Depends how much depends. you like the heat. Uh, Lena is a Cambridge is Cambridge funding, so she has a 
And, 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 and another thing here is that also since I'm moving a lot of atoms and not bits, like if you're a software company, you don't, you know, my heritage, we don't experience that. I need to install something on my Python, deep install, I can be in Israel, I have access to the entire internet, right? Yeah. But I move atoms, I don't move bits when I build drugs. And to be able to get shipments in time as fast as I can, which is super important. Most of the time what we do is just wait for stuff to come, right? We just wait for, for reagents. Yeah. My ability to source agents here is much better than in Israel. I you know it at my heritage during the COVID pandemic, we had stuff stuck at customs that the government is like, you know, super critical for for Israel. Stuck at customs. Why? And you need to speak with Ilan that will speak with Moshe that will speak <laughs> with this to get it out of it. That's ah, we're able to like, you know, accelerate the process, how cool we are. So it's just easier to do. And now also if the pound is being like shit, it's Great, you know, it's like almost like I, it's also super cheap to actually actually perform here in the UK. Yeah. So you that's convinced like, us. We're convinced. It, it, <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not a typical hub for biotech. Boston is much. It's better hub, I think, but much more expensive to operate. But when you so when you fundraise, okay, so an Israeli company, a software, a clinical genomics company, that uh, and and we look to fundraise in the US as well, and the main thing was that. We're, we're not interested in anything outside the US. Are you are you experiencing this as well as a, as a UK company or or you I manage not, to? At first, we, we are Israeli UK, right? We don't like, no. we don't sell ourselves as a UK company. We have okay. also some, you know, some people working in Israel, actually the computational people, because then we don't need the atoms to come, right? And we yeah. have great computational biologists in Israel. We, I do not experience that. I think also for VCs, in the recent years, then there is a better appreciation of opportunities abroad, not just the US. Because of many trends in the US, that they just realized that you should also look at places abroad. Um, stuff just became ridiculously expensive in the US. Talent is really expensive. And and also it's not also harder to get immigrants to the US that usually were they were the ones that facilitated. So I think there is much more like reception of, of funding companies outside of the of the US. Israel is a great hub for startups in general. We are the country of the highest per capita VC uh, capital in the world. Um, so it, it's a great hub. UK, by the way, is not that. Wow. So many interesting things we've discussed here. I think we should wrap up. Um, we, we usually sort of ask for, um, you know, a myth that sort of exists in uh, about academia and industry and sort of what you came to realize that is not true. I think we've really crushed a lot of those uh, during this conversation. If you have one more to add, uh, feel free. Uh, but I really appreciate your you know, outlook on academia, on industry, on, on building startups. Uh, on UK, it was fun to talk with someone who yeah. appreciates that uh, area. I did my PhD in Cambridge, so I really love that area. Um, and I think they're doing an amazing job in, in trying to connect to industry and to clinics and and really build those hubs and, and I'm happy to hear it's it's working. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great, thank you. Thank you very much, really appreciate the opportunity.